Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century and by the grace of God, was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So, without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. The following poem is from the Mathnawi of Maulana Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi, translated and abridged by E. H. Winfield. That person one night was crying, O Allah, that his mouth might be sweetened thereby. And Satan said to him, Be quiet, O austere one. How long wilt thou babble, O man of many words? No answer comes to thee from nigh the throne. How long wilt thou cry, Allah, with harsh face? That person was sad at heart and hung his head, and then beheld Kizer present before him in a vision who said to him, Ah, thou hast ceased to call on God, wherefore repentest thou of calling upon him? The man said, The answer, Here am I, came not, wherefore I fear that I am repulsed from the door. Kizer replied to him, God has given me this command, Go to him and say, O much tried one, did not I engage thee to do my service? Did not I engage thee to call upon me, that calling Allah of thine was my here I am, and that pain and longing and ardor of thine my messenger? Thy struggles and strivings for assistance were my attractions, and originated the prayer. Thy fear and thy love are the covert of my mercy. Each, O Lord, of thine contains many, here am I's. The soul of fools is alien from this calling on God, because it is not their want to cry, O Lord. On their mouths and hearts are locks and bonds, that they may not cry to God in time of distress. God gave Pharaoh abundance of riches and wealth, so that he boasted that he was Lord Supreme. In the whole of his life he suffered no headache, so that he never cried to God, wretch that he was. God granted him the absolute dominion of the world, but withheld from him pain and sorrow and cares, because pain and sorrow and loads of cares are the lot of God's friends in the world. Pain is better than the dominion of the world, so that thou mayest call on God in secret. The cries of those free from pain are dull and cold. The cries of the sorrowful come from the burning hearts. This week's short story is entitled, What's Your Secret? There was a man, described by some as being mystically inclined, 
who was renowned for his ability to get difficult conflicts resolved. Warring nations, divisive stockholders, labor strife, collapsing governments, as well as a number of failing marriages among the rich and famous had all benefited from his counsel and negotiating skills. However, for whatever reason, the man always had insisted that participating parties sign a contract prior to the commencement of even preliminary discussions concerning a given issue or problem. Conditions of this contract would bind everyone concerned to absolute silence with respect to what took place during discussions and any ensuing activities which, hopefully, might lead to resolution of a given problem. The nature of the contract was such that everyone was held collectively responsible for breaches committed by any single individual connected with the conflict resolution process, and the financial penalties for breach of contract were rumored to be quite substantial. Whether out of fear of the monetary consequences and legal entanglements, or due to the fact that the man had never failed in any assignment he accepted, in which the condition of silence was honored by all parties. An aura of inviolability tended to shroud his activities, methods, comments, and suggestions whenever he was engaged in a process of conflict resolution. Moreover, because this man was a very private individual and therefore rarely gave interviews of any kind, there were few clues available which might shed light on how or why he seemed to be so successful with situations that on the surface often appeared not to be amenable to being resolved in a harmonious fashion. A faculty member of a prestigious university who had cross appointments in both the School of Management and the School of Public Administration knew that the aforementioned conflict resolution specialist was getting on in years, and the professor feared that a great treasure of knowledge would be lost forever if steps were not taken before the man died to try to establish a permanent record of how this individual was able to, so regularly, work his magic in situations laden with tension and animosity. So the professor spoke with various deans within the university, as well as its president, and the board of trustees about the possibility of taking a leave of absence in order to try to persuade the man who could resolve conflicts to record his extensive knowledge, techniques, methods, and so on, in order that such understanding could be passed on to subsequent generations. The plan was approved. Shortly thereafter, the professor began his quest. Because of the notorious reclusiveness and reticence of the focus of his research project, the scholar was anticipating that his task would prove to be both difficult and time-consuming. Therefore, he was quite surprised when he was granted an appointment to meet with the great man early in the following week. The professor was to be given just one hour to ask whatever questions he wished. There would be no follow-up meetings permitted. Obviously, an hour was not very much time in which to gather information that might affect the way courses and conflict resolution would be taught in universities for generations to come. The professor struggled to try to come up with questions that hopefully might be capable of penetrating to the heart of the matter and induce the man to divulge some of his secrets. 
After several days of hard work, the professor felt ready to conduct his interview. When the time for the meeting arrived, the professor was escorted into a sort of large boardroom where the man to be interviewed was awaiting the scholar's arrival. The two shook hands and took seats. After exchanging a few preliminary remarks, the professor decided to ask his first question, and as he did, he encountered the first of many problems. The scholar would ask a question, and he would be met with responses such as, I'm sorry, but that is classified information, or contractual obligations permit me from answering your question, or I would need the permission of so-and-so to be able to provide you with any information on this, or this touches upon ongoing negotiations and therefore I am not at liberty to comment, or that decision has been sealed by the courts. Question after question was met with similar responses. The time allotted for the interview was rapidly drawing to an end, and the professor had not come up with one useful piece of information. The great resolver of conflicts could tell the scholar was frustrated with the way things were going in the interview. The former man smiled sympathetically and a little sheepishly, saying as he did, I'm sorry, if I seem very uncooperative. This was not my intention when I granted the interview. I truly did hope that maybe, if circumstances permitted, something of value to you and possibly others might arise out of our meeting. There really are some very important reasons why information concerning these issues are so tightly controlled. Much of our success depends on such secrecy being maintained in a very rigorous manner. And if this sort of information were to become public knowledge, many of our future efforts might be undermined and come to naught. Looking at his watch, he continued on, I fear our time is nearly at an end, but there may be one thing I can do for you before you leave. What I have in mind is this. There are several brief meetings which I have to conduct in this room. Why don't you sit in on these meetings and perhaps you may catch a small sense of the flavor of how we go about things, and therefore you might come to feel that your time here has not been entirely wasted. The professor wanted to try to make the best of what had proven to be a very disappointing set of circumstances and consequently he agreed to the suggestion. His host requested that the professor just observe during the meetings and if the scholar had any comments or questions concerning what went on to please wait until the two meetings had been completed. The great resolver of conflicts pressed on one of the buttons on the intercom and asked for someone to be sent in. A short while later, a woman entered the room. She took the seat indicated and as soon as she was seated, she began to complain about one of her co-workers who worked with the great resolver of conflicts. The woman went on for some time describing how the man was creating difficulties of one sort or another in relation to a certain project. When she had finished, the resolver of conflicts said, Yes, yes, you are quite right in what you are saying. I will have to talk with him, and let's see what happens. The woman left happy with the results of their meeting. As soon as she had left the room, the man again pressed one of the buttons on the intercom and asked for the individual about whom the woman just had been complaining. A short while later, the door opened and a man walked in. He took the seat where the woman previously had been sitting. He was asked, So, 
How is such and such a project going? No sooner had the question been asked when the man who had just entered began to criticize the woman who recently had left the room. The man spoke disapprovingly of the woman approximately as long as she had gone on about him, and he voiced many of the same sorts of criticism. When the man stopped talking, the great resolver of conflicts said, Well, I must admit that I can understand your point of view, and I couldn't agree with you more. We'll have to look into this matter very carefully and see what can be accomplished. The man who previously had been the focus of the woman's complaint stood, expressed his gratitude for having had the opportunity to speak, and walked out of the room. When the man had left the room, closing the door behind him, the scholar's host swiveled in his chair and faced the professor with a look that invited the scholar to voice whatever might be on his mind. The professor hesitated for a moment, unsure whether or not to say what he was thinking. Finally, he said, I might be missing something here, but quite frankly, your conduct during these two meetings seems rather contradictory. A woman comes in and complains about a man, and you agree with her. Then the man about whom she was complaining comes in and proceeds to criticize that woman for having made the same sorts of mistake as the woman alleged with respect to the man, and once more you completely agreed with the complaint. What these two people were saying was diametrically opposed. They couldn't both be simultaneously correct. The man looked at the professor, nodded his head, and replied, You're absolutely right. Today's musical interlude is titled City Lights.
From the outback of Australia to the rainforests of South America, from the frozen tundra of Siberia to the plains of Serengeti, from the Himalayans of Asia to the white cliffs of Dover, from the geysers of Yosemite to the glaciers of Antarctica, you are listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. The following meditative essay is called Science. The general impression of many people not involved with the Sufi path is that mysticism is far removed from the sort of rigorous methodology which characterizes modern science. In point of fact, this impression is completely wrong. Descriptions of modern science tend to vary somewhat from person to person. This descriptive variance is true even within the sciences. Nonetheless, there are certain basic themes which usually are entailed in all of these descriptions, irrespective of whatever other differences there may be in such descriptions. These core currents in the scientific process are probably seven in number. 1. Science is rooted in empirical observation. 2. There is an emphasis on instrumentality both for purposes of the detection and measurement of various phenomena. 3. The central role of recursive methodology. 4. The need for objectivity. 5. The issue of consensus among a community of knowers. 6. The requirement of replication. 7. The desirability of prediction. All of the foregoing elements are present in the Sufi mystical path. The discussion which follows is merely an overview of what is meant by the foregoing methodological principles in the context of the Sufi science of mysticism. The empirical roots of the Sufi path come in many forms. Not only do the normal, external, sensory channels provide empirical data, there are internal channels of empirical data as well. Dreams, hal or mystical states, makam, spiritual stations, kash, mystical unveilings, and ilham, flashes of divine intuition, also provide infinite sources of empirical data. Furthermore, these internal sources of empirical data come in different manifested forms of intensity and certainty. As is true in the case of modern sciences, there is a considerable difference between the empirical character of the reports of a trained observer and the reports of an untrained individual. For example, not everyone who looks at an x-ray or who examines a photograph of the traces of a subatomic event can correctly interpret this empirical data. Similarly, not everyone who undergoes a mystical dream, state, station, or unveiling is able to understand correctly the empirical data to which such experiences give expression. The Sufi path provides an intense program of training so that its adherents may become competent, exacting, empirical observers. The intensity and rigor of this program rivals, if not exceeds, anything which modern science offers in the way of training its observers. Modern science employs a variety of instruments in its pursuit of understanding. On the one hand, there are what might be termed 
natural instruments such as logic, reason, and mathematics. On the other hand, there are different kinds of external apparatus or instruments used in the detection and measurement of various phenomena. The Sufi mystical path employs as well a variety of instruments. In addition to the instrumental capabilities of the mind, for example, logic, reasoning, which mysticism shares in common with modern science, there also are other instruments available to the mystic quest for understanding. According to Sufi masters, the heart, that is, the spiritual entity, not the physical object, is the locus of gnosis. This provides a direct, conceptually unmediated engagement of different dimensions of divine reality. Another instrument spoken of by Sufi masters is the seer or mystery. The seer is said to be the locus of spiritual witnessing with respect to whatever God may disclose to the individual. A fourth modality of instrumentation comes through the ruh or spirit. Sufi masters describe the spirit as being the locus of love for divinity. The love of the spirit enables the individual to experience, know, and understand life, identity, and one's relationship with divinity in a manner which is different from but supplemental to the other spiritual instruments of mind, heart, and seer. A further instrument of the Sufi path is referred to as the kafi, or hidden. The kafi is described as being the locus of manifestation for the spiritual illumination, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding which comes through encounters with the divine lights and colors of a certain realm of God's dominion. Beyond the kafi, there is a further potential for spiritual instrumentation capable of engaging still additional dimensions and secrets. These concern certain modalities of divine mysteries and secrets which are breathed into the essential capacity of human beings from the Spirit of God. The instruments of modern science must all be calibrated to be of value. This also is the case on the Sufi path. Mystical instruments, like their physical counterparts, only produce reliable results after a process of calibration in which a variety of instrument adjustments are necessary to eliminate various sources of distortion and inconsistent readings. Modern science employs a recursive methodology which entails a series of repetitive steps that hopefully permits one to come closer and closer to the true character of some aspect of reality being encountered through experience. In effect, one feeds the results from one cycle of repetitive methodological steps back into the next cycle of such steps in order to generate improved accuracy, understanding, and so on over time. On the Sufi path, recursive methodology plays a key role. One starts out by, if God wishes, cleansing, balancing, and transforming the ego or false self through repetitive cycles of prayer, fasting, charity, and so on. This constitutes the first set of repetitive steps. One takes the results from the first application of recursive methodology concerning the ego and proceeds, God willing, to purify the heart through zikr, or remembrance of God. This is a second cycle of repetitive steps which builds on the accomplishments of the first cycle. The next set of repetitive steps involves the seer, or mystery. 
If God wishes through a process referred to by Sufi masters as emptying the seer of other than God, the understanding of the individual is further supplemented and complemented. A further cycle of the process of recursive methodology is encountered when, God willing, the spirit undergoes the perfection of its spiritual potential. Once again, the application of recursive methodology through the process of perfecting the spirit brings the individual by the grace of God to a deeper, fuller, richer understanding of different dimensions of the reality of being. To be objective, one needs to eliminate as many sources of bias, prejudice, distortion, and error as is possible. The search for truth must be freed from all forces which would compromise the integrity of that search. Sufi masters outline two major expressions of objectivity on the mystical path. The first concerns the condition known as fana. Fana occurs when the false self dissolves before the presence of divinity. Since the false self is a major source of error and distortion, the condition of fana enhances the degree of objectivity in one's engagement of reality. The second source of objectivity on the Sufi path comes through the spiritual condition of baka. This condition occurs when the true self and essential capacity of the individual becomes established. In a sense, baka is a spiritual version of an unobtrusive measure. In baka, one sees by the vision of God and one hears by the hearing of God and so on. Consequently, there is nothing which one does which intrudes into the engagement of experience and distorts the nature of that experience. There is a limiting factor in the foregoing which is a function of the spiritual capacity of the individual. One cannot experience or know more than one has the capacity to experience and know. Spiritual capacity, however, does not distort or introduce error. Whatever is experienced is true and real as far as it goes. On the other hand, the spiritual experience, knowledge, and understanding made possible by the grace of God through the full realization of one's spiritual capacity do not exhaust what can be experienced, known, or understood with respect to divine realities. The community of Noahs in modern science plays an important role in considerations of methodology and evaluation. The community of Noahs establishes the parameters of agreement and permitted disagreement within which the process of science is to be conducted. There is a similar community of Noahs in the Sufi mystical tradition. Unlike modern science, however, the essence of what is agreed upon by the mystical community of Noahs has not changed since the inception of such a community. The Sufi mystical community of Noahs consists of all of the authentic Sufi masters of the path, both present and past. All of these masters are in agreement concerning the structural character of human beings and what is necessary to work towards the full realization of the essential spiritual nature and capacity of the human being. Sufi masters do not always share the same understanding in all matters. Like their counterparts in the community of Noahs in modern science, not all Sufi masters are equal in spiritual capacity. Nevertheless, irrespective of whatever differences in spiritual capacity exist among Sufi masters, 
None of this affects the agreement about the general character of what constitutes spiritual progress on the path. One goes from seeking to finding to gnosis of to loving to fana and finally to unity in divinity. Different people may experience these stages in self-similar rather than self-same ways. However, the essence of oneness remains in the midst of these differences. The issue of replication is at the heart of modern science. If the result of a research project cannot be repeated by other investigators, the original research cannot be confirmed and therefore lacks scientific credibility and reliability. The procedures for setting up and carrying out a given line of inquiry must be clearly stated. This is necessary so that any qualified and competent researcher can follow those procedures and produce a result which reflects within certain allowable limits of difference the outcome of the original research. The process of replication is also central to the Sufi mystical path. Indeed, the nature of the mystical path is itself the process of replication, which clearly has been described by all competent and qualified spiritual researchers who have proceeded one on that path. If one follows the procedures and methods indicated, then God willing, one will arrive at the same sort of outcome and conclusions as did the original researchers. These results are expressions of universal laws concerning the inherent nature of the relationship between human beings and divinity. Finally, although not all sciences exhibit the capacity to predict on the basis of known principles how certain phenomena will unfold over time, mystical sciences does have this capability. However, for a variety of reasons, Sufi masters often will not indulge others or themselves with public exhibitions of their God-given gifts to predict how events will unfold. There are many well-documented accounts of the ability of Sufi masters and Sufi saints to tell what will happen before a given event manifests itself in the physical world. There also are well-known accounts of the ability, by the grace of God, of various practitioners of the Sufi path to be able to describe and subsequently have corroborated what is going on simultaneously at considerable distance from them. Above and beyond such favors of God, there is a precision to the predictive understanding which Sufi masters have concerning the effect on the individual of different spiritual practices or lack thereof. This understanding comes from the light of God and allows the Sufi master to be able to guide initiates along the mystical path with precision as a result of that understanding. According to Sufi masters, there are different levels of reality. The lowest realm concerns the world of corporeal bodies. This is known as Nasut. Next comes the realm of the souls of all created beings. This is the level of Malakut. Beyond this is the realm of Jabru. This level concerns the attributes of divinity. After the realm of Jabru is the level of Lahu. This concerns the fixed forms of non-existence which, if God wishes, a given reflected existence through the divine command of creation, Kun or Be. Beyond the realm of Lahu is Hahu. 
This is the divine essence which makes all the other levels possible. For the most part, modern science only explores the lowest realm of existence, namely Nasut, which is the realm of corporeal bodies. Modern physical science, unlike mystical science, has no capacity to explore any of the other realms of being. Unfortunately, all too many physical scientists rationalize the foregoing limitations by dismissing the other realms as being irrelevant to the process of science. Mystical sciences, in other words, Sufi masters, indicate that in very fundamental ways such realms are not irrelevant to the process of science. In fact, according to practitioners of the Sufi path, the very first act one must perform in order to seek the truth is to cleanse and purify the self. As such, science of whatever kind is, in essence, a moral and spiritual activity. Scientific methodology has value and appeal precisely because, among other things, it gives expression to a way of trying to preserve the integrity of the scientific process and protect the results of that process from being compromised and rendered unreliable. Mystical science pursues the value and appeal of such methodology to its furthest limits of possibility. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Thank you.